0: And our passage this morning is Ephesians 6, we'll read verses 10 through 20, this is it for the letter of Ephesians, there's only the concluding remarks left in the letter and many of the pieces of that very last section are in our benediction for this morning, but this is really it for our time in Ephesians, there'll be something of a revisit of the congregation in Ephesus next week, but for the most part this is the end of our time in the letter and we finish with a well-known and very strong passage in the letter. Young Christians, young theologians, as we go through this particular section of the letter, Jesus is going to give us new clothes to wear, but they're probably not the clothes you're expecting. So what kind of clothes does Jesus give to us as we go through this last part of the letter? This is the good news of Jesus. It may not always seem or sound like good news, And now, O Lord, we ask the same thing. Give to me words that in opening my mouth, the mystery of the gospel may boldly be proclaimed. Give to all of us words that when we open our mouths, the mystery of the gospel may fearlessly be proclaimed, and that we may see it bearing fruit and having its effect. Against all the enemies. Glorify yourself by humiliating the enemies that stand against you. And do it by unleashing the wealth of your grace. And for it, if you will fight for us, for it, we will give you thanks. And we ask it in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Spirit. Amen. Would you be seated? Satan prowls like a roaring lion, the Apostle Peter writes, seeking someone to devour. The Scottish missionary doctor David Livingston was attacked by a lion while he was hunting that lion. It lunged at him and bit into his shoulder and pulled him to the ground and began to shake him. That instinctive tearing action of predators. And Livingston was conscious through the whole thing, and he wrote about it later in his journal. The shock produced a stupor, he wrote, a sort of dreaminess in which there was no sense of pain, nor feeling of terror, though quite aware of all that was happening. It was like what patients partially under the influence of chloroform describe, who see all the operation, but do not feel the knife. This passage has that same dreaminess to it. There's an awareness of being pounced on, bitten, and shaken, but there's no pain or terror. Just the surreal awareness of the attack. And there's another dreamy passage that echoes in this one. It was a conversation between Jesus and Peter again, just before Jesus was arrested and put on trial and carried off to crucifixion, just before Peter's disowning of him. Jesus peels back the curtain to show the powers at work behind the events that are about to take place. And Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. Now, there is a lot in that little verse. First of all, Jesus believes in Satan, which is good for moderns who like to think of Satan as a primitive fiction, it's good for moderns to know that Jesus sees him as a personal entity, seems to know him, to be well acquainted with him. They're enemies, but apparently there's interaction. There are demands and threats, refusals and allowances passed back and forth between them. And the verse tells us that Satan wants to shake Peter, an aggravated assault of Peter's soul. Satan asks permission of Jesus to throw at Peter painful trials and temptations and to see in the shaking if any of Peter's love for Jesus is actually substantive, to see if it's solid enough to last. Will it survive or will it all be blown away? like the dried up husk from a piece of wheat. And Jesus agrees to the shaking. Can you believe it? Jesus tells Satan that he can do it. And his consolation to Peter is, "But I have prayed for you. Your love for me, your faith, won't die. I will keep your heart. You will not die in the attack. And I think there's something too to the fact that Jesus goes back to Peter's earlier name, his birth name. He's Simon, not Peter, not the rocky one anymore. Oh, Peter, you're going to be shaken. And on the other side of this, you will be the rocky one again but only after having gone through it. And Peter falls into the dreaminess now. He can almost feel the teeth before he goes numb. And that's what Paul is telling us in this passage. Paul writes, Church, it's your turn now. Satan has asked to sift you and Jesus has agreed and this is not a double cross. There is gospel even in this. But first things first, remember where we've just been. We've just come through a long list of common everyday relationships husbands and wives, parents and children, masters and slaves. And the point of all of that was to tell us what he says to us here these are not your enemies. These are relationships that give occasion and need for the gospel. And these people are to join you in the gospel, to join you in wanting it and enjoying the gospel. But they are not the opponents of the gospel in you. The true enemy is printed up on a wanted poster in verse 12. We do not fight against flesh and blood. As much as other people may give us trouble, they're not the true enemy. We fight against rulers and authorities and the cosmic powers who operate in this present darkness and rule over the darkness of unbelief. All around us, we fight against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I know we have trouble conceiving of the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places, but just remember Satan asking Jesus for permission to shake Peter and the church. That's what the phrase means. All these unseen entities who hate the truth of Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus, His authority, His glory, His redemption, His love, His grace. Those are your enemies. And here's how spiritual attack works. The forces of hell showed up on earth to fight against Jesus. And now, they're fighting against Jesus and you. In order to get to Jesus now... They'll come at his church. They want to destroy the gospel of Jesus in you. And the scale of the conflict is much like David the shepherd boy walking onto the battlefield with his sling and a handful of stones. And the sun is blotted out. It goes dark as a redwood of a man stands over him with a necklace of dried ears and browned finger bones clacking around his neck. He's a freakish strength powered by a heart of cruelty with a blood thirst. And it's not a fair fight as David pockets a stone in his sling and the giant palms his javelin. And you step, every day, you step onto the battlefield for a fight you can't possibly win. You have an enemy of a monstrous strength. The powers of darkness, the forces of evil, supernatural strengths coming against you. It's like the trailer of a horror movie, but it's not a trailer. It's your life. And numbers are against you if you just glance back through verse 12. The whole list of enemies, the long list of enemies who have it in for you. And it's a fight that isn't fought in the open. It's a war of stealth. It's all sneaking and surprise attacks. It's at the end of verse 11. We're up against the schemes of the devil. The one who who plots, spends energy, conspiring to bring you down. You're against his schemes. He's not going to make it fair for you. He's not going to broadcast his moves to you. Older versions say that we're up against the wiles of the devil. And when we think of someone who's wily, we picture a cartoon coyote wearing roller skates with an oversized rocket strapped to his back, perched at the top of a ramp to jump a gorge and snatch up an idiot roadrunner. And it never works. But that's not what wily means. Wily means scheming and good at it. And there's nothing comic in what's thrown at you. These schemes are effective. Like the whispers of doubt, he sends through your head to chip away at the truth you've held too lightly. Maybe you've never had to lean on the truth entirely. Or the sinful emotions that are stirred up to clog and glut our hearts. Or the sin that's excused and encouraged and shown to be effective to get what we want. By sinners who gather together in societies of brokenness and unbelief. And they tell us, it's all normal. Why aren't you living like this? Or our own traitorous hearts. Or the magnetic allure of the idols that we invent and craft for ourselves. Or the sudden violent loss of things loved. Comforts taken away. Things we've depended upon, loved too much. And so they're taken from us. It's not a fair fight. You're outnumbered. You're outmaneuvered. You're overpowered. You don't stand a chance. But to read the way Paul writes it here, the way Paul says it is, you don't stand a chance of losing. Like David standing in the shadow of a giant who planned to turn the boy into a throw rug for his tent. Slobbering, spit down his beard, his muscles twitching for another kill and David untrembling says to the giant I have something you don't have I have the name of God and I have his steadfast love and the giant never saw the stone that hit him and you have that Paul says that same thing is yours four times he says it starting in verse 11 your God is willed that you'll be able to stand against the schemes of the devil they won't do you in And in verse 13, he's willed that you'll be able to withstand the evil day. A day filled with evil, bent on devouring you because you are alive in the gospel. And the end of verse 13, having done all he's given to you, stand firm, unmoved, not thrown back, not thrown down. And the very first word of verse 14, a simple echo, stand. It's not a fair fight. But you're not at the disadvantage. You aren't on the losing side. In spite of all appearances, it isn't a fair fight for the rulers, for the authorities, for the cosmic powers of darkness that want to swallow the light forever. It's not a fair fight for the spiritual forces of evil. I've actually misled you, suggesting your David squared off against the hate-seething giant who wants to grind your bones into the dust of memory. But actually, Jesus came to be David standing before the giant. It's funny to me that we talk about Jesus as being the true David, but we think of him only as the adult replacement for the adult king. We never think of Jesus as being the true David in David's childhood. His smallness. But Jesus came to be the one who went down to the battlefield looking weak. Looking like one who couldn't possibly win the fight he'd volunteered for. A fight against a ruthless opponent. How many times, how many times in his life was Jesus our little losing David standing before a monster about to be a trophy on someone else's wall. It was every time he was cornered by the teachers of the law with their word games and their law puzzles. It was every time his own disciples tried to talk him out of crucifixion and resurrection. Tried to get him to rewrite and rework ...his messianic mission. You can say by another way... ...be a general, be a political messiah... ...but not this way. It was every time... ...they opposed him meaning well. It happened when he went out into the desert... ...to be tempted by Satan... ...for 40 days. It happened again when he stood before the chief priest. To be insulted and assaulted instead of worshipped. It happened when he dragged his cross through the street. And at the end of the line there was a Roman soldier waiting for him with a hammer and spikes. It happened when they dragged his limp, lifeless body through the streets to seal it up in a tomb and to leave it there. How many times did Jesus make Himself look weak only to show that His weakness is stronger than every last Goliath? Sin, guilt, shame, failure, curse wanting to find security in our own law-keeping over God's grace, wanting to find safety in the false promises of our idols instead of God's love, our stone-cold rejection and unbelief, the divine justice stacked up against us, severance, death, the one who looked weak has a handful of stones that can't miss... The will of God. The Word of God. The covenant of grace. A righteous heart. An atoning sacrifice. A recreating resurrection. A spirit given to dead things to make them alive. And you can hear giants drop dead all around you like cut timber. The Gospel is... It's not a fair fight because sin and evil want to destroy the gospel in you. But Jesus fights for you. And Jesus wins for you. And you can't lose what he has won. That's why it's not a fair fight. It isn't fought in your strength according to verse 10. Finally be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. You don't have to dig up some inner strength on your own. You, you have no strength to match up against the enemies that want to ruin your heart and sink your life in sin and hardness and unbelief. And Jesus, in His weakness, has beaten the unbeatable enemies. And having beaten them, He can't lose to them now. And the secret is, in the strength of the Lord, in the strength of His might, you can't lose to them either. The gospel he won you with, he will keep you with. In fact, Paul says, it covers you like a suit of armor. In verse 13. The belt of truth fastened around your middle. This is where the ancients believed your emotions were, in your guts. And the truth of God fashioned into a belt and cinched up tight around your waist to keep your emotions, your passions, your fears, your anxieties, your worries from running away with you. The breastplate of righteousness to keep your heart, to guard your vital organs. Righteousness isn't something you just dabble in from time to time when you feel like it. It keeps you alive. And the readiness of the gospel of peace as shoes. Shoes that run into the fight against darkness. Not away from it. And the shield of faith. Big and thick and heavy. To hide behind. Faith in the faithfulness of Jesus. That will stand up to fiery arrows. It will stand up to every battering that comes on you. And the helmet of salvation. The impenetrable covering of justification and atonement. And forgiveness and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Word of God embodied in Jesus and now proclaimed through His church is the gracious weapon that sin has to run from or surrender to or fall under. I grew up in a tradition that loved to preach this passage, but my tradition always wanted to pull the armor apart and itemize it piece by piece and try to get us to think about whether or not we were using each piece to its maximum efficiency and capacity. We were so atomistic in the way we looked at the armor here. We couldn't stop ourselves from sort of obsessively poring over each piece of armor and what each piece did. And it's only in adulthood I've realized that's not how armor works. This is how it works. You put it on and forget about it. You put it on and forget you have it on so you can concentrate on the fight And anyway, Jesus doesn't have His hope in your ability to use the armor. His confidence is in the armor that He's put on you. It will cover you. It will protect you. In my strength, in my gospel, you can stand and fight. My hope is not in you. My hope is in the way I have loved you. So off you go to the fight. Armored in my love. And by the way, we haven't talked about the fight yet, but it's verse 18. It takes place in prayer. Prayer is where verse 10 comes alive. When you pray, you're not trusting in your strength anymore. You're giving up on it. And you're relying on the strength of another. And when you pray, that's where you're taking up the armor of the gospel that Jesus has given to you. Praying, Not because you're supposed to, but because you have to and you need to. Praying not to sound spiritual, but crying out to Jesus to be unbelievably good and holy and gracious again and again and again. That's everything the enemy doesn't want you to do. To call out to Jesus and say, use your righteous power, your crucified strength, your risen might to do gloriously... Ancient cultures believed that when peoples prayed, the deity would get up off the throne and march out to fight for the people. That's not a bad image for what happens in prayer. And it's especially true of our Jesus. And that's what makes prayer so dangerous. Oh Jesus, make your enemies wish they had never come out against you. That's how you pray. Oh, Jesus, make them wish they never took up the opposing side. That's how you pray. Centuries ago, when the barbarians were streaming from the east to sack Europe kingdom by kingdom, and the princes of Europe would come out and oppose them, One of the barbarian chieftains came up on a kingdom... ...and the prince did what he was supposed to do. He came out to defend his people. And the armies were lined up face to face on the battlefield... ...and on the prince's side there was a small group of men... ...right at the head of the line. They had shaved heads and long robes... ...and they wore crosses around their necks... ...and their heads were bowed... ...and their lips were moving silently. They were muttering something. And the barbarian chieftain asked his general... ...who are those people... They're the priests of this place, the general said. What are they doing? They're praying. They're asking their God to conquer you. Then kill them first, the chieftain said. We think of prayer as so sweet and so nice. And that's not what it is. Mary, Queen of Scots, the oppressive Catholic queen over England who made so much trouble and misery for the Protestants, who was opposed by John Knox, the Scottish Presbyterian pastor. Mary said, I fear John Knox's prayers more than an army of 10,000 men. Praying is where you fight. And what I want to know is is anybody afraid when you start to pray? What I want to know is, does anybody get nervous when you fall to your knees? When you call out to Jesus, does hell laugh or does it tremble? Our prayers are so powerful when we fill them with our need and the love and the might of Jesus. When we ask Him Rise up and move powerfully that people all around us will begin to believe and to turn from sin and to trust in your strength. Fight for us again, Jesus. Fight graciously and savingly and regeneratively. And all the powers of darkness that stand against you, blot them out. Ah, but why do we even have to fight? Why do we have to fight it all? This is the mystery of the entire passage. The mystery is sin is going to show its strength by attacking your body and your life and your faith. All that you believe in or all that you think you believe in. Evil will come against you and show its strength by showing up in your circumstances. But the gospel will show its greater strength by keeping you. By never letting the attack sink you. By never letting the fight overwhelm your faith, your heart. By always having what seems like just one punch more to use for you than sin has to use against you. See, you have to believe that one is stronger than the other. Sin or grace. The fall or redemption. David or Goliath. Jesus or the enemy. And how will you ever believe that the gospel is stronger than the trials and the temptations that we invite and inflict on ourselves sometimes? the trials and temptations that are thrown on us at other times. How will you believe that the gospel is stronger if you aren't brought into the fight to know it and feel it for yourself through His body, through His heart, but in your body and in your heart? He will show that His gospel is stronger than the sin that wants to tear you away from Him And make you a lifelong prisoner in an enemy kingdom. The real mystery is... ...Jesus brings you into His fight. You are with Jesus and in Jesus... ...and behind Jesus and under Jesus through it all. But He brings you into the fight. Close range, hand-to-hand combat... ...because you have to choose a side. And you'll choose the one you believe is stronger. How will you ever believe the strength of the gospel of grace... ...if you never have to wear it as armor? How will you ever believe the strength of the gospel... if your life never depends on it. And if you're a skeptic, all of that isn't so much for you, but this is. It's time for you to feel something different. It's time not to feel yourself fighting against Jesus. It's time to feel Jesus fighting for you. You should begin to believe in him. You should begin to follow him, and you'll feel him fight for you. Jennifer and I were talking this week, and we were thinking through our time in Dallas. And I was talking about me, but it was really about us because we go through it together. But through the week, I had been thinking, and I was amazed at all the ways I've been spiritually attacked over the years. At all the things that evil and sin have thrown against me to try to ruin the gospel of Jesus in me. And oddly, Jennifer had been thinking about the same thing on her own. So we compared notes. We listed the attacks that I or we have lived through. And by the end of it, there were so many, it was comic. And we laughed because we couldn't think of anything the enemy hasn't tried yet. I'm sure there's something. I'm sure it's coming. We just couldn't think of it. And we ended our conversation by being unspeakably grateful for the way Jesus has protected and kept us. And I've thought of the ways that you've been attacked. And i thought of the ways this week that our session has been attacked. Personally, and when they sit in office and they do their work together. And I can't think of anything that we haven't been through. The grace of it is, the armor of the gospel holds up. The grace of it is the gospel we cling to, to keep our lives. It doesn't break down and leave us vulnerable and exposed and easy prey. Look, when we're attacked, we may be battered and broken and scorched, and it may hurt like hell, but the armor doesn't give way. It doesn't buckle. So... We don't have to be nervous and sweaty about the next attack. It'll come. There will be plenty more. But stand up because Jesus has given you his armor to wear. And his armor won't break. It won't fail. In the film Mountains of the Moon, a biopic about Sir Richard Burton's quest to find the source of the Nile River, There's a scene in a dinner party where Burton meets Dr. David Livingston, the adventurer missionary. And the two dinner guests are bored with the occasion and the event, and they're clearly bored with the other guests. So they sneak off to another part of the house. They slip into a study, and they close the door behind them, and they begin to compare scars from their expeditions. And they have to take off dinner jackets... And shirts and part their hair in the wrong way to reveal a patch of scalp. They have to roll up pant legs and roll down socks. Whose scars are worst and whose stories are best? That was the game. And it could only make sense to the two of them because they'd been through it and they walked away. And that's what the gospel does with your scars. You've been attacked. And you wear the marks of it. And you'll always wear those marks. Your wounds are wrapped up in the wounds of Jesus. And He wears His wounds like marks of redeeming love. So yours are the scars of grace. And they're just scars. They're not fatal wounds. Your scars tell your story. It's a full story. Your scars tell that the enemy hates your guts because he hates the gospel that's alive in you. And your scars tell that the Savior's love is much stronger than the hatred of any enemy. So Paul closes his letter and he gives us instructions that we can use to close out a life if we need to. This is what you carry with you for the rest of your days, Paul says. Remember your armor and wear your scars with pride. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for you have willed your truth to triumph through us. The Prince of Darkness Grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. Lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And Lord Jesus, You are that little word that no one expected to last in this world. No one expected to last against your enemies. And you are our strength and our safety and our security. How every day it's a fight, every day we wake up and we're we're assaulted. And every day our enemies want to destroy your gospel alive in us. And every day you refuse to allow them. We're shaken, but we're not lost. Let your gospel bear strength. Let the gospel that has won us be the gospel that will keep us against every and all attack. And once again... Rise up, O Jesus, and use your strength to do graciously, savingly, regeneratively. Make the powers of darkness sorry that they stand against you. And use us, however you will, and make our faith stronger, bolder, and more joyful than ever before. You are not your own. You belong to the Savior through His Gospel. And if you have thanksgivings to bring for it, you can bring them to the box at the center of the theater as we sing our closing songs. As always, if you have reason to rejoice or you need someone to fight with you, the elders will be at the front to pray. Would you stand and sing?